Hello and welcome to the Women Inspire podcast with me, Laura Adams. This is the podcast that inspires us by honouring remarkable women past and present. Women whose achievements have perhaps gone unrecognised, been forgotten or at times completely erased and whose stories are crying out to be told. If men use explosives and bombs for their own purpose, they call it war, wrote suffragette Christabel Pankhurst. And the throwing of a bomb that destroys other people is then described as a glorious and heroic deed. Why should a woman not make use of the same weapons as men? It is not only war we have declared, we are fighting for a revolution. These words were written in 1913, the year in which suffragette violence had escalated dramatically and terrorist acts were being committed all over the land. The suffragettes were living quite literally their motto, deeds not words. But one woman amongst them was perhaps the most violent revolutionary of them all. Her name was Kitty Marion and this is her story. Kitty was born Catherine Marie Schaefer in Westphalia, Germany, on March 12, 1871. At the age of two, her mother died of tuberculosis. Her father, Gustav, never recovered from the loss. He developed a violent temper, which was frequently turned upon his only daughter. They moved to Dortmund, where Gustav married a vivacious young Protestant woman. She was kind to Kitty and loved to curl the little girl's striking red hair. This was in stark contrast with her morose and controlling father, who would beat her across the face on one occasion breaking her nose. She would later recall a painful episode when he brought her home a puppy one day which adored Kitty. This infuriated her father so much he would beat and kick the dog to show him who was master, and the puppy died after just a few days. When she was six years old, Kitty's stepmother gave birth to a baby boy, but both mother and baby died soon after. Her future now seemed bleak, and at the time Kitty said she wished they had taken her with them. Gustav's work required him to travel, so Kitty was taken to be cared for by his parents in the country village in which he had grown up. The villagers welcomed her, and her family loved her. She would climb the ruins nearby and run in the fields, and with her father away she was happy. But it was to be short-lived. After two years, her grandmother became seriously ill and died suddenly. Kitty remembered in years to come the sound of her uncle's Great Dane as he howled through the night. There was no option now but to be returned to her father, and together they moved to the industrial mining town of Witten-on-the-Ruhr. Here they lived in a tiny, packed boarding house. The other residents were charmed by the little red-headed child who would sing and recite to an enrapt audience. But Gustav was jealous of the attention she received. He banned her from playing with the other children in the neighbourhood and at this point she started to rebel, which was met with more beatings. He would hit her over the head as he derided her for her stupidity and carelessness over her homework. When she revealed her ambition to be an actress, he threatened to kill her. In 1886, at the age of 15, Kitty found her way to escape. On a visit to her uncle, she received a sudden invitation to stay with her Aunt Dora in London. Kitty accepted, and without telling her father, and with the full support of her uncle, who had almost certainly orchestrated it, she left and didn't look back. The violence and abuse were at an end, and she would never see her father again. Kitty stepped off the ferry in Harwich to a sea of foreign voices. She spoke not a word of English, but an interpreter put her on a train to Liverpool Street. 
On arrival in London, she climbed down with trepidation onto a dirty, smelly platform and into a whole new world. Her Aunt Dora met her and escorted her home, where Kitty was now to help care for her five young cousins. This new life came as a shock. Dora lived in a relatively poor neighbourhood in the East End, and with no English, Kitty was feeling homesick and overwhelmed. But as she slowly began to learn the language from the children's school books, the Bible and newspapers lying around, her life began to improve. After a few months, and by now becoming more confident in her new tongue, she took one of the children to see a play locally, which reignited her love of theatre, and she realised that this could be a route to freedom and independence. One day, she picked up the Daily News and spotted an advertisement for young ladies who wished to learn to dance, with the promise of a pantomime engagement at the end of the training. Having convinced her Aunt Dora that this was a sound idea, she applied and was accepted into a dance school in Waterloo Road. At the school, she joined 50 other young women as they were taught the Sailor's Hornpipe, the Highland Fling and the Irish Jig, alongside the core discipline of ballet. Kitty loved the friendly atmosphere and her English quickly improved. Her first engagement was at the Theatre Royal Glasgow in Robinson Crusoe. As she passed through the Midland Hotel at St Pancras to board a train to Scotland, she felt like she was going home and that her life had truly begun. Kitty was a born actress. She loved the costumes, the grease paint, the camaraderie and the companionship of the company. Her German accent was seen as exotic. She learned to smoke with the others and she felt she was accepted. The panto was a success and the run was extended, after which she made her way back to London by boat as it was half the price of the train fare. A family friend suggested Kitty try out for Music Hall and introduced her to an agent, Mr Dreck. He saw her perform at a benefit gala in Bermondsey and agreed to take her on, but insisted she come to see him personally to sign the contract for a job in a seaside town on the East Coast. On arrival, she found the agent alone, and he soon made it quite clear what he wanted. Kitty was horrified and found she had entered the world of the casting couch, a cruel realisation. It appeared to come as a surprise to him that his advances were rebuffed by Kitty, and he was not best pleased. On her opening night, she found herself in the middle of a knife fight, which she managed to swiftly diffuse when, without thinking, she grabbed the arms of both sailors involved, recognising immediately that her actions had been both brave and stupid. On a return to London, she was told politely by her agent that her services would no longer be needed, with the erroneous excuse that her performance had been unsatisfactory. Kitty returned to her Aunt Dora's in despair. Her career appeared to be over before it had begun. It was clear now that the family had begun to see her as a burden, so she packed her bags and left. Though she no longer had an agent, she applied successfully for a music hall job, which she had seen in the stage. Her career back on course, she soon acquired her stage name, Kitty Marion. In spite of the unpleasant encounter with Mr Dreck, Kitty was still completely innocent sexually, and around this time an actress friend enlightened her, and this came as a shock. The only example of parenthood she had had was the experience of a brutal and abusive father, so she made the decision that she would never marry or have children and would not give up her independence for anybody. Though she would form several attachments to men, she would not waver from this decision for the rest of her life. 
She continued to work and found she was frequently warding off the unwanted advances of the powerful men who expected sexual favours in exchange for work. The double standards whereby men could seemingly do as they wish, yet women were punished for it, was wearing her down. By her mid-thirties, Kitty was in crisis. On June 21, 1908, she found herself one of 300,000 men and women who descended upon Hyde Park to support women's right to the vote and intending, through strength of numbers, to force the government to take notice. Organised by the WSPU, or Women's Social and Political Union, the militant wing of the suffragettes, Kitty had initially been reluctant to attend, but had been persuaded by a group of actress friends who intended to march to Hyde Park from the Chelsea Embankment. The march was a revelation to Kitty. Swept up in the fervour, she realised other women had the same beliefs as her and they wanted change. Suddenly, she was hearing her own views expressed more eloquently than she could have expressed herself, and these women were not just talking about it, but doing something about it. She felt like she had woken up and knew she was one of them. Her first serious protest against the government came a few months later, on the 13th of October, when she volunteered to join a deputation led by 12 women attempting to reach the Prime Minister. Over 30 people were arrested as Parliament Square grew increasingly violent. Kitty escaped arrest, but returned home to find she was covered in bruises inflicted by the police. She became a newspaper seller in Piccadilly Circus for the publication Votes for Women. It was a soul-destroying job, as she was faced with daily insults from members of the public, male and female. Her background as an actress was doubtless a great training for a suffragette, as her cry of votes for women rang out around the West End. Many of Kitty's friends deserted her at this point, but this abandonment, along with the insults she endured, only made her more determined. At a meeting of her union, the Variety Artists Federation, she recognised that the abuses faced by women in her industry weren't being addressed and that with her newfound confidence, she interrupted the meeting to express her grievance that men were able to use their power over women in need of work to elicit sexual favours. The audience erupted in support and she was asked to give a full written report to the London County Council. But in reaction to her brave stance, her industry deserted her. Agents no longer answered her calls and the work disappeared. Her attempt to highlight this very real issue, one that we are sadly aware still exists today, resulted in her becoming a figurehead whilst at the same time being ostracised by her own community. Eventually, the London County Council decided not to investigate her claims and with her reputation in tatters, there was no other option but to devote herself fully to the suffragette cause. The protests had become more violent. Windows were being smashed, buildings were being damaged and MPs were being accosted as suffragettes demanded for their voices to be heard. Those who were imprisoned had begun to hunger strike and by the end of the year the government had introduced their policy of force feeding. This degrading torture was excruciatingly painful and only served to strengthen the resolve of the women. Kitty herself claimed that it was this barbarism that incited her to violence. Her first act of destruction was to throw a stone nervously through the window of the post office in Newcastle-upon-Tyne as part of an orchestrated attack on the city. She and her colleague were arrested and skirmishes broke out. Kitty fully believed her actions were justified, 
If it was acceptable for men to use violence to secure their rights, then so was it for women. In prison, the women were stripped, bathed and dressed in prison clothes, which Kitty fought against. Once in her cell, she barricaded herself in and was so successful, it took the guards 24 hours to gain access, and then only when they had removed the door hinges. Like the others, she went on hunger strike and refused to dress or leave her cell. Three days later, she was brutally force-fed. She said the tube in her nose seemed to cause her head to burst and eyes to bulge, and most of what was forced into her was vomited straight back up. She lost consciousness and found herself lying flat on the cold, hard floor. It was the first of many agonising force feedings and she returned to her cell in agony, violated, degraded, but still fighting. She hurled a chair at the window which smashed, whereupon she heard the voices of her supporters singing suffragette songs to keep up the spirits of those inside. One night, after she set fire to her cell, she was dragged out half-conscious and put on suicide watch. She soon became so weak, she ended her hunger strike and was released. Kitty was overwhelmed with pride when she was presented with her WSPU Medal for Valour at the Royal Albert Hall, which was given to those who had suffered force-feeding. The following November, the infamous event which became known as Black Friday occurred, when 300 suffragettes marched on Parliament to protest at the failure of a bill that would have enfranchised about a million women. Mounted police were sent in to meet them and carnage ensued, during which women were pushed, brutally beaten and sexually assaulted. It marked a turning point and from now on the suffragette violence, which was recorded by the press as suffragette outrages, began to escalate. In 1911, Kitty broke a window at the Home Office for which she was sentenced to 21 days and the following year she took part in mass window smashing in the West End of London. Having smashed shops in Regent Street, Kitty was arrested and remanded in Holloway, sentenced to six months hard labour and then transferred to a prison in Birmingham. After her release, she was sent to Wrexham where she verbally attacked David Lloyd George and a braying mob set upon her, beating her and ripping her clothes and undergarments. A photo of her being led to safety by police appeared in the national newspapers the following day. In 1912, the violence took a new turn and for the next two years, Christabel Pankhurst orchestrated a highly organised bombing and arson campaign throughout Britain from her refuge in Paris. Cotton mills, timber yards, railway stations, banks and post boxes were targeted. The homes of MPs, racecourses, churches and sporting pavilions were bombed or burned. Even the Prime Minister was attacked. Victims were occasionally badly hurt and vital communication channels were destroyed when telegram and telephone posts were cut across the country. A radicalised kitty was at the forefront of the campaign. Not everyone supported these new terrorist tactics and cracks were beginning to show in the organisation, but Kitty believed the attacks were the only way the government could be convinced to listen. In 1913, Kitty's good friend Emily Wilding Davison lost her life days after she ran in protest in front of the King's Horse at the Epsom Derby. In her honour, Kitty and her friend Clara Given decided to target the Hurst Park racecourse near Hampton Court. On arrival at midnight, they climbed over a tall fence and made their way with their munitions to the grandstand. They soaked the pavilion with oil and scattered suffragette leaflets around to ensure it was known who was responsible. 
Then they lit a candle in the middle, intending to be well clear by the time the building caught fire. However, the plan went wrong, and almost immediately they were surrounded by flames. They managed just to break through, and as they struggled back over the fence, an alarm sounded. It was a close shave, but they had survived. The following morning, however, back at their safe house in Kew, they were arrested and charged. Kitty was able to attend Emily's huge funeral procession through the streets of London before her trial, where she was sentenced to three years' penal servitude. A cry of no surrender from attending suffragettes rang around the courtroom. Kitty went immediately on hunger strike, but was soon released under the Cat and Mouse Act, whereby the women would be released only to be imprisoned when they recovered. With the help of the WSPU, she escaped, and now as a hunted and renowned suffragette, she continued her terror campaign, burning down buildings and glasshouses around the country. On a visit to London, she was arrested at Charing Cross Station. She smashed the window of a taxi cab with her foot as she was bundled in, and it apparently took eight police officers to restrain her on her way back to Holloway. In prison, she was force-fed a total of 232 times in four months. No surrender, she wrote in soap on her prison cell wall. Her own accounts of her torture are almost unbearable to read. She says she would beg the doctor to put poison down the tube to finish her off. Close to death, she was finally released. As one of the most dangerous members of her organisation, in the summer of 1914, Kitty was taken to Leicester to instruct WSPU members in how to carry out arson and bomb attacks. Whilst there, the order was given by HQ to suspend all activity. World War I had broken out and the suffragettes were now to put the full weight of their support behind the war effort. In the course of just a few years, over 1,200 women and 100 men had been arrested for suffragette violence. In return for their support, the government now offered an amnesty to those who had broken the law, and those still imprisoned were released. For a few months, Kitty stayed with friends in the country, but on her return to London, she discovered that the police had been making inquiries about her. They believed she was a German spy. She was horrified, and with anti-German feeling growing, realised she was in danger. Friends sprang to her defence, but though she was cleared of spying, it appeared she was to be repatriated to Germany, a country she could only vaguely remember and which she saw as the enemy. Influential suffragette friends came to her aid and made the decision to send her to America instead. They raised enough money for a one-way ticket to New York and on the 7th of November 1915, Kitty landed in the US to start her new life. She was keen to get back on the stage, but to her surprise she wasn't wanted. Most agents were either anti-suffrage or anti-German and her voice had been irreparably damaged by the force feeding. Instead, she turned her attention to the suffrage movement, but she found the reception frosty here too. She was desperate, but managed to find work as a maid, and it was around this time that she discovered another cause into which she could immerse herself. This was the dawn of the international birth control movement. The leading campaigner was a nurse named Margaret Sanger. She and her sister, Ethel Byrne, had opened a family planning clinic in Brooklyn where local women who were mainly immigrants could access information on contraceptives. The clinic had been shut down and each time it was reopened, Sanger had been re-arrested. Eventually it had been shut down for good 
as it was an issue not being discussed in Britain at the time, this feminist movement was completely new to Kitty. When she was asked to join them, it was the call to arms she needed. She quickly educated herself in the aims of the movement and became a newspaper seller, selling their magazine, The Birth Control Review, on the streets in true suffragette style. Kitty was soon arrested for selling a pamphlet to a Vice Society member, and in prison she encouraged others to agitate for birth control reform. Kitty travelled for years in the US and Britain, dispensing birth control literature and was arrested on several occasions. In 1930, the decision was made to stop selling the review on the streets and Kitty found herself out of work again. Back in England, she worked as a pamphleteer and was surprised that so many women were unaware that prevention could be used as an alternative to abortion. On her return to New York at the age of 60, she found that after all these years there still had been no change to the birth control laws and the reality of women's lives had changed very little. She also found the movement no longer wanted to be associated with her and she was forced to live on handouts from friends. She managed to get work as a teacher and in her final years she wrote her autobiography. Eventually she entered the Sanger Nursing Home in New York City and on the 9th of October 1944, at the age of 71, she died. It is not possible to condone the act of terrorism and I would suggest that Kitty leaves one feeling conflicted. Her acts were often violent, brutal and endangered the lives of others as well as her own. But she was resilient, revolutionary, uncompromising a woman who fought for the rights of other women and for our freedoms, whether it was for the vote, for control of her body, or for the right to work and live without the fear of sexual assault. She believed violence was her only choice. To look back retrospectively nearly a hundred years later is poignant when we acknowledge that her experiences of exploitation as a performer are still being repeated in show business even today and her willingness to make a stand did not cause the change that she so desired. At Women Inspire, the stories we tell are of real women, real human beings, multi-layered and complex like we all are. Women like Kitty sought to change the status quo and in doing so, they've made a difference to the world. I hope that today we have honoured actress, suffragette, birth control activist and the very human Kitty Marion in all her unique complexity. Much of my information for this podcast has come from Fern Rydell's wonderful biography, Death in Ten Minutes, which has recently revived Kitty's memory by telling her story the one that she wanted to be told, and which if you'd like to know more about Kitty, I can strongly recommend. Thank you for listening to the Women Inspire podcast. If you'd like to know more about Kitty Marion, please see the show notes on the podcast page of our website, womeninspire.co.uk, where you can also read our blogs and find out details of up-and-coming events. If you know of others you think might like to be inspired by these incredible women, do help me spread the word. Join me next time to hear the story of the incredible pioneer, civil rights campaigner and visionary described as the mother of the Notting Hill Carnival. In the meantime, all the best until then.